Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Today's episode is part one of a two-part topic on debt financing. Part one is focused on terminology surrounding the financing process. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. I'm Ben and I'm here with John and Ryan. And for today's episode, we're going to talk about debt financing. Now, if you've been a avid listener of the show, which I'm sure many of, if not all of you are, you know that we've already done a sort of overview episode about real estate financing more broadly. Today, we want to hone in a little bit more specifically on the debt side. And why we want to do that is so that you, both the everyday intermediate and expert investor, have a sense of the landscape and know where to go and what to look for when you're negotiating and talking with lenders. And so some of the types of financing in lenders you may be dealing with are conventional lenders, portfolio lenders, FHA lenders, hard money, private, etc. So our experts are going to take you through it. Nobody knows it better than John and Ryan. And so I'm going to start by throwing it over to Mr. Wells Fargo himself, uh, Ryan Goldfarb. Where do we want to start this? Ryan, quote, Wells Fargo, quote, Goldfarb. <laughs> Together, Wells Goldfarb. Wells Goldfarb. <laughs> That's really good. Some, it's, one my, it's one of my friend's jokes. So oh, man. I'll steal it. I, th- I, think, I, think, it's, right I think it's Neil. Okay. In about 50 years, when you acquire Wells Fargo, you can... <laughs> Uh-oh. You don't want that kind of publicity. Set, I'm still set, not over it. Set big goals and then try to achieve them. That's you know. That's just right. put it out to the world. See what's going to happen. Interesting to it's interesting to think about where these banks will be in fifty years from now. Yeah. Anywho, um, particularly they keep loaning money to us. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, we in Ben's eyes are the experts on this. No, so. of course. <laughs> my my only goal is really to convey every episode that you guys are experts at fill in the blank topic <laughs> of that episode. Uh, Should I cut that? I don't know. Well, we're always learning. <laughs> There's like the 0.0001% of the earth's population that we listen to. He's like, these guys don't know it. Like, I'm working at the Brooklyn Bank for 40 years. <laughs> okay. Well, they said it on the well, Brooklyn Bank podcast. It must be true. Well, sir, I worked at one for yeah. three years. <laughs> I want to make sure that we accommodate that person. I want to be sensitive to that person. He's like five people on earth. We are way off the rails. We didn't even get started yet, and we're already <laughs> sidetracked. Anyway, taking us back to square one, yeah. the way that I've been thinking about this is in the context of buying, let's say, a car. There are so many different places where you can start, and there are so many f- things to think about. You'll walk into a dealership, and they'll start throwing all these terms at, at you, uh, both pertaining to the car itself and to the different ways that you can obtain the car. You can buy it outright. You can lease it, you can finance it. And in a lot of ways, I think there are parallels to buying property. You can buy it outright, you can buy it with financing, you can lease it, i.e. rent it as as many of us do for our own purposes. You can um, steal it by <laughs> adverse possessing it over decades. Squatters um, rights. That'd be, a, that'd be an interesting episode. Yeah, it is a good episode. Um, anyway, so that's kind of how I, I think about this high level There are, I guess, to start any number of ways that you can buy it, as I alluded to before, it can be through all equity in the case of, you know, just buying a property for 100% cash, Mm. or the more common way to do it would be to put down some money in the form of a down payment and then obtain a loan for the remainder. That loan is what is classified as debt. So well, and, and usually just to clarify the loan is secured by a lien on the property. Right. So that's what classifies this type of financing from you could also get other types of 
debt, I suppose, that aren't secured by liens. Like you could get a personal line of credit or something like that that's secured by your personal credit. But these are all secured by the actual asset. So that distinguishes, that's a category of thing. Yeah. Right. So under that umbrella of debt, some of the options are conventional financing, which is what most people think of when they're going to buy a home. It's you go to the bank and your banker says, we can get you into this new house for 20% down. We'll run your credit. It's oftentimes the loans are guaranteed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, and they fall into this bucket that allows them to be offered to you at pretty attractive rates. And so that's that's generally more applicable to the owner-occupant class of purchasing, which is what you would use to buy a primary residence. On the investment side, there are also a litany of other options, including commercial portfolio lenders, uh, hard money loans, private lenders, each of which have many similarities, but also some key differences that are important to be aware of before you dive in and pursue any one of these paths. So John, I don't know, if, am, I any, am I missing anything here? Well, I, I think um, we'll, we'll get into it, but part of the, the skill of being a real estate investor is knowing when and how to use these different financing options. So oftentimes with a home, you'll, you might buy a home with a certain type of financing or no financing and then obtain financing for that home at a later time. Or you might start with one type of financing, change to a different type of financing, et cetera, et cetera. Which and would be known as a, a refinance. A, re, a refinance, right. And depending on your goals of the property, depending on the type of the property, that may be very advantageous or not. So we, we can run through some examples. I mean, just very high level. Uh, the, you know, you, if, if you're familiar with reading, say, Bigger Pockets or that community of thing, you've probably heard of the, the Burr strategy, which is buying, renovating, renting, refinancing, and then repeating. And refinancing is sort of the key word or what we're talking about, which is normally in a Burr technique, you might start with, could be conventional financing, could be FHA financing, whatever. And then you're going to refinance that into a conventional loan and take money out of it. So even like very beginner, like house hacking type strategies, you're going to have to know knowledge about financing and how it works. And I guess before we get too deep into the weeds here, uh, it'd probably be good to start with some definitions or with understanding some of the key components of what these different loans will offer. The first one is leverage. That's often referred to as uh, the loan to value or in some cases loan to cost. So if you're buying something for $200,000 and your lender is offering a loan product with an 80% loan to value, that means that the lender, so long as they support that $200,000 value via an appraisal or some other type of internal valuation, they're willing to loan up to $160,000 on that property for that purchase, which means that you as the owner, investor, whatever you want to call yourself, need to bring the remaining $40,000 to the table plus allocations for all the closing costs that you that you will incur, plus any holding costs that you will have for any period of time thereafter, up until you are fully stabilized with your rental property and have tenants in place who are going to cover those holding costs. So leverage, most commonly, I think the, the most common benchmark that you'll see is generally 75 to 80% loan to value for investment property. Uh, the more risky an investment can be generally the lower loan to value that a lender will offer out. 
I so, think that's true. That's that's definitely true for the world of residential loans, properties for commercial loans. Um, you can get a lot lower or higher, whatever you want to call it, um, requirements. So you might be able to get like seventy percent loan to value, sixty five percent loan to value, things like right. that. Right. So as you get into as you get into say commercial property, you know, like a strip mall or a standalone office building or or something akin to that, uh, you may find lenders that are a little bit more averse to lending at high leverage because the secondary market for that kind of mortgage is a little bit different. There aren't as many means to securitize and sell off that paper, which means that the lender themselves often has to hold on to the loan for the lifetime of that loan. Whereas when you're buying a residential mortgage through Wells Fargo or through ABC Lending Corp in your town that is a well-known mortgage broker, they're originating the loan, but within a few months, that loan will get bought by an investor, generally as part of a pool, and that investor will be the one who's essentially clipping the coupons and earning the interest on that. Yeah, so the banks are like recycling cash. That's how these big originators are able to do so much volume, because they're not at any given time loaning out like $100 million of cash. They're loaning out X amount. They're selling it to an investor or securitizing it or whatever. And then they're recycling that money that they got back to relend it out to more people. So, right. Um, so oh, it, it may be worth noting, sorry to cut you off, right. but that um, for primary resident, like if you're living in the home, that's generally the the most leverage that you can obtain. I don't actually know. I, I mean, I, I could fathom exactly why well, I think banks the, do that, but... I don't think it's necessarily a business play. I think the reason for it is because the... So if you, if you think about the existence of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA... FHA is. I think an, about it. <laughs> if FHA is an, is a government agency, Fannie and Freddie are quasi government institutions, so they are. Uh, FHA is the private. Federal Housing Administration, right? Yeah. Um, or authority, administration, authority, or what, what administration, administration, yeah. administration. Yeah. FHA, uh, yeah. And Fannie and Freddie, meanwhile, are technically private entities, but they are kind of under the Auspices. oversight. Yeah, they're under the oversight of the of the federal government. Um, and the reason that those institutions are in place are for a few different purposes, one of which is to make home ownership more accessible to the everyday American. It's we, We've actually discussed this in the past. The mm -hmm. idea of through, um, through government trying to catalyze good behavior or sound behavior, in this case, mm -hmm. buying a home is probably better than spending that same money on a car or a or an asset that is under any circumstances going to depreciate right. home at least has a, a high chance of retaining its value and potentially even increasing value yeah. over time. So if you're living in the home as your primary residence, you can get loan products that are as low as even 0% down, or they may even pay you closing costs. But for most people, it's more like three and a half percent down, 5% down are conceivably possible depending on your credit in the home and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then the other reason why these institutions exist is to promote liquidity in the marketplace. Uh, and that's mostly for the health and longevity of, of the real estate markets. Anyway, getting back to leverage. So as John alluded to, there are actually some loan products out there. I believe the conventional 97 still exists or something in that realm. And then there's an FHA loan product as well that can um, provide access to or access to a mortgage with as little as three or three and a half percent down. Yeah. In and there are certain, v certain VA loans right. that are zero percent down and right. all sorts of other things. And yeah. then there are also some, sometimes in addition to um, 
these attractive loan products, there may be some down payment assistance programs right. through, through through different grant programs or other subsidies. So you get anywhere between over 100% loan to value ratio to 60%, 50%, depending on the type of building asset that you're buying, your personal credit, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get into that. Right. And then another offshoot of the leverage question is that is the fact that some loans allow for the ability to borrow renovation proceeds. Um, so there is still some calculus in there pertaining to to leverage limits. They generally won't let you borrow something in excess of what the property is going to be worth uh, at the conclusion of renovations. I think 203K may actually have an exception for that, but generally any kind of investor focused loan will not. So if you're buying something for $100,000 and plan to put $25,000 into it, you may be able to finance both a portion of the purchase and a portion of the renovation, so long as your value upon renovation or upon completion is in excess of the value. It might be a minimum of 150,000, it might be a minimum of 175 or 200, but depending on the loan program, that will be that would generally be considered loan to appraised value or uh, as stabilized LTV. It, it, it can be enumerated. And in so, any number sometimes of you can wrap multiple loan products into one loan, depending on the bank. So you can get like a construction loan, construction which, to permanent, construction to permanent, you know, yeah. something like all sorts of things. To what extent do you have influence when you're talking with, and I know we'll get more into the process of, of what is the give and take between you and, and a lender when you're offered terms. Can you play a part in the process of determining that, after renovation value, for example, uh, is that purely on the bank's assessment, or are you able to have some say in in what you think that is and where you think the fairest terms are? Well, if you're talking about just with respect to what the appraised value is on the back end, that's generally going to be driven by some kind of internal valuation by mm-hmm. the bank, or more than likely driven by an appraisal, which is supposed to be done by an independent third party. So you may be able to make the case that based on something you know or some kind of substantive experience that you have that you know this property is going to be worth $600,000 when it's done because you just renovated and sold the one next door which is identical and you got $600,000 for it. Generally on the residential side it's going to be driven by mostly by comps, uh, so sales comps that is. On the commercial side, on the investment side, it's generally going to be driven by the what's called the income cap approach which is it's a valuation methodology driven by capitalizing the NOI on a property. So you go through an income and expense pro forma something out, arrive at an NOI, and then apply a cap rate to that NOI to arrive at a value. Um, that's something that we've gone into in a little bit more detail in in prior episodes. Um, but high level, that's that's how it's done. Cap rate is usually from the market, what the market cap rate right. is for that area. Right, for that area and for that asset class. Appraisers, I mean, it's a whole nother, (laughs) it's a different Um, episode. We can, I guess, move next to the loan term. So that's obviously going to be a big factor in weighing different investment options or loan options. The standard, again, in the the residential space, nowadays at least, is the 30-year fixed rate loan. 30 years is advantageous to the borrower because it spreads out the principal payments over a longer period of time, which means that your monthly payment is able to uh, to be kept within reason and it ultimately gives you more buying power. So 30 years amortizing, fully amortizing. Right. So, so that's, a, that's a fully, fully yeah. amortizing loan, correct? 
Amortizing would mean in this case that you're not paying only the interest on the money that you lend. You're paying back the principal interest over plus, time. Plus right. principal. And that's yeah. and that's governed by an amortization schedule, which uh, if you look into is is quite unfavorable to borrowers. So you're paying mostly interest at the beginning of your loan. You're right. paying mostly principal at the very end of your loan. Right. Even though your payment might be the same $2,500 right. a month for the duration of the loan. So the loan term, again, 30 years is common in the residential space. But when you get into the commercial space, it's more common to see uh, maybe a five, seven, or 10-year loan. Oftentimes, there's variable pricing within that. So you might have a certain period of a fixed rate loan, and then it adjusts after the fifth year every year until the end of the the term. So you might have five years of a fixed rate loan. And then after starting in year six, you will have a new rate that maybe cannot increase more than a certain amount, but that will generally be pegged to the prime rate or LIBOR or perhaps the treasury, although that's a little bit more common on fixed rate loans. The loan term is is important to keep in mind as an investor for a variety of reasons. But probably the most important of which is you don't want to be caught if you're looking at if you're looking at a five year loan and a twenty year loan and you decide to go with the five year loan because the interest rate is significantly lower. It's important to to, to bear in mind that there's risk associated with with that. If you're buying, if you bought in two thousand four and you put five year financing on your property and your prop and your loan came due at the end of year five, you were your loan was coming due at a time when property values were at maybe not an all-time low, but we're at a low for like a significant period of time preceding that. So you are going to be... The reason we saw so many foreclosures during that time in part was because people who were in that situation were seeing either loans reset or were seeing a pending maturity. They couldn't purchase or they couldn't sell at a number that would allow them to pay off their loan. And they couldn't refinance based on current values at a number that would make it a, that would make it feasible for them to hold on to the property. So that kind of fed this vicious cycle of increasing supply, which further suppressed property values and just you know kept the spiral moving downward. Yeah, and if if in the short term, if you're flipping, for example, and you have a non-amortizing loan, like an interest-only loan, you might have the term, the length of time of that loan is going to be very important because that sort of determines the amount of time that you have to sell or refinance out the, the property. So if you have a six-month hard money loan that gives you essentially six months to sell the property, which is not a very long time, versus a year, versus 18 months. And those are usually interest-only, as we were talking about before, they're not fully amortizing. So you're only paying the interest. You haven't paid down any of the principal. And at the end of the loan terms, you need to pay back the entire loan in one go. There are also, on, on the flip side of this, there are also investors who who use this probably on the more conservative side of things, but they will really take a long-term view view towards this and they'll say, look, my retirement goal is in 15 years and all I'm really looking for this property to do is to serve as a source of income for me during retirement. So they might buy a property knowing that they're going to, or putting 15-year financing on the property and they might amortize that loan only over 15 years. So they're paying back a lot more principal during those 15 years than if they had spread that out over 30 years. So their monthly payments are going to be higher and their cash flow is going to be lower because of that. But their goal is to have this source of income for retirement. So they'll have, in theory, a fully paid off property at the end of year 15, no mortgage, which will mean more more cash flow down the road, 
at the expense of cash flow in those first 15 years. That's a good point. John alluded to this before, but the the flip side of this uh, is when you're talking about, no pun intended, flips. Um, (laughs) When you're looking at a much shorter time horizon, and this is another area where investors can get a little ahead of themselves and they'll think that they can complete a flip in six months, no problem, but they underestimate the scope of the work. They underestimate the obstacles with zoning or the building department. Uh, They get screwed over by a contractor and they get left with a project that's going to take them much longer to finish than just 12 months. But I think in the hard money space, it's very common to see 12 months as a typical loan term. And what that loan term means is that at the end of it, your loan is due. And if you can't pay off that loan, then you are in default. And that's that's not a road you want to go down. That's bad. Yeah. <laughs> that's bad in the words of Ben Charlie. Expert opinion, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's, it's probably fair to point out from a hard money perspective too, that it's it can be a good option for people who may not either qualify it for two reasons. Either if you're looking to flip in a short term period or for investors who might not initially qualify for conventional loans for whatever reason as almost like a bridge to that conventional right. loan via refi. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll get into the strategies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I guess I should just on. go. <laughs> <laughs> just leave, Ben. It's ridiculous. <laughs> one other one other subset of the of the term is that you can have a different amortization period than what your loan term is. So that's going to sound very confusing. Uh, and it took me quite a while to grasp fully. But you may have a 10-year loan that is due at the conclusion of 10 years, and you may have an amortizing loan, but it may not fully amortize over that 10 years. So you may pay off that loan as if it's a 30-year loan, in which case, you know, after 10 years, you've maybe paid off 20 or 20 or so percent of the principal. But at the end of that 10 years, your loan term may be up. So your you may either have to sell or refinance or pay it off in cash if you are so inclined. The reason that this is done is because it gives lenders a little bit of cushion and frankly borrowers as well, but it gives lenders a little bit of cushion and lessens the risk on their side of things because if you're doing a 10-year loan as a lender, if you offer it as interest only, that's super risky because your borrower is not paying anything down. And if they're buying it at the height of the market, when they go to refinance, there's a high likelihood that the valuation that they arrived at on day one will not be the same uh, at the end of year 10, in which case they may be... It, it's it's more likely that they will be unable to to refinance the property. That's That's what we would call refinance risk. So to allay that concern to an extent they will build in some amortization into the loan schedule. So that 10-year loan might amortize over 30 years, which means that the principal payments are going to be embedded in every monthly payment. So it's a little bit more expensive for the borrower on a monthly basis, but it's far less expensive than it would have been had that 10-year loan be fully uh, been fully amortizing. And if you, if you just kind of play around with a mortgage calculator, I mean, I do this all the time. If you go into Google... This is what I do in my free time, ladies and gentlemen. If you go into Google and just type in mortgage calculator, Google has a built-in mortgage calculator right there, and you can kind of play around with some of these things. So you can see uh, a million-dollar loan at 5% on a 10-year term versus a 30-year term. That assumes that these loans are loans are fully amortizing, so you can kind of get a sense of how that yeah. impacts the monthly payments. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a lot of fun. We we do a lot of uh, something that we talked about at the beginning, which is interest-only, hard money, cash purchases, and refinance. I know we're going to talk about it later, John, and refinance to conventional uh, mortgages. Watch. But to 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 Ryan's point, I think one of the the most the, the things that gets my blood going is playing around with the numbers in such a way to see just how much we're reducing our interest. You like playing uh, around with those numbers? Ben? Oh, I love playing around with those numbers. Talk dirty to me. Uh, when we refinance, right? The whole purpose is to make your debt less expensive in essence. Uh, and sometimes that means elongating your amortization period, et cetera. Right. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I, I didn't mean to cut I don't care at all. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh, sure. You know, I'm just trying to do my part. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ben. I'm sorry, Ben. We value you here. Um, <laughs> That's very clear. In the, in the interest... <laughs> In the interest of time, I just want to highlight some quick definitions um, so that we can get a little bit more into the strategy of things, Um, but it'll be useful for the details of the later conversation. So amortization we discussed on, DSCR is the debt service coverage ratio. You may also see it abbreviated as DCR. The formula for that is NOI divided by annual debt service payments, the, the sum of those. Effectively, what it is showing you is the cushion between your net operating income and your debt service obligations. So it's the lender's way of saying, okay, they're paying us $10,000 a month on their mortgage. That's $120,000 a year. Their projected NOI is $150,000. So the form, the math is $150,000 over 120,000, which I believe is a 125 DCR. 1.25, which is oftentimes is an arbitrary threshold. I, I know at least for right. federally backed financing. Uh, when I got they run high. The- I don't know if that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So as Ben alluded to, we'll, yeah. we'll discuss that a little later, but 125 is a pretty common benchmark in this space. Yeah. All right. Um, so beyond DCR, we have the mortgage constant or debt yield. I think this is actually more of an internal metric that banks use, um, but the formula for this is pretty simple. It is the NOI divided by the loan amount. So if a bank's giving a $10 million loan on a property with a $800,000 NOI, that's a debt yield of an eight, which is another way of saying, it's another way of gauging the bank's return if they had to take over this property. Next, we have interest rate. That's pretty straightforward, though it can get a little bit more complex when you get into some some more unique deal structures. Do you want to talk about interest rate versus APR? Yes. Would you like to do that? No, you can do that. <laughs> um, well, then, no, I would not like to talk about interest rate versus APR. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a good... Uh, I don't know the well, the technical... I mean, APR is just like your interest rate. Like So an APR is inclusive of like additional fees or other things that might be wrapped into the loan. So you might have an interest rate of, you might be quoted an interest rate of say 5%, but then you're effectively paying 5.25% because of various fees and other things that are, that are wrapped into it. So like, it it sounds like a credit card. So you see like a credit card APR is sort of like the effective rate that you're paying, even though the, like your set interest rate might be below that. Thank you, John. (laughs) Notice Ryan's um, different reaction when John <laughs> speaks than when I speak. You know, hashtag ben, you know we feel sorry for Ben is trending on Twitter right now. I just think when you hear like the voice of God kind of commanding you, you know, a deep, sonorous, masculine, Where, manly voice. Where's George? I need George 32 right now. years of life. 
pulsing through my veins. All I want is for this episode to consist of more than just a few definitions. (laughs) Um, All right. So under the umbrella of interest rates, we have a few different benchmarks that are used to determine what interest rates are. Uh, Some different ones that you'll hear are LIBOR, which is the London interbank offering rate, I believe. The treasury rate, which is based off of the the Federal Reserve or the the Treasury Department's uh, current yield on bonds. And that's over different time frames. So you might have a you might have you'll have a five year treasury, a seven year treasury, and a ten year treasury. And there's a yield curve that's or a a pricing curve that is generally accepted in that space. And so you'll see a little bit of a difference between the five, seven, and ten year pricing as a result of that. Uh, and then there's the prime rate, which is I think it's actually pretty murky or unclear as to what the actual science is behind the prime rate. I don't know if John has any more. I, I don't know experience with it, but it's a good question. I, I do know that the prime rates are only one, two, three, five, seven, thirteen. <laughs> uh, yes, prime was, number jokes, really ladies and gents. Drop the mic. That's like a dad joke. Out. It's a dad joke. Thank you so much. That's like a very specific type of dad joke. That's a dad joke for a dad who's a math teacher. I know. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm neither of those. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> um, but prime rates, I believe, are published publicly, but I believe they're determined based on like a survey of banks and their current yeah, pricing. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think it might be a survey of the, the Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah, the, um, something like something that. Something like that, it's yeah. a, it's a It's a like small sample size of banks yeah. and it's, it's a... It's, it's a said obtainable number, but correct. I don't know how it's obtained. But the prime rate's actually important because a lot of a lot of loans are priced off of prime. So your, your pricing might be prime plus one, which would mean one percentage point over what the prime prime rate is. So if prime's five, your price, your interest rate is going to be six. Um, that's also adjustable rate mortgages are commonly priced as a in relation to prime. Other things that you will see when shopping around are prepayment penalties, um, which can take the form of defeasance or yield maintenance. Uh, sometimes they're in a step down pattern after a certain period of time, but essentially it's just the the bank's way of protecting their downside um, because they don't want to spend three months underwriting a loan for $5 million and have you come back day two and just pay it back with any... Yes, Ben, we have a question. Yes, I do. Thank you. Uh, just curious, actually. So I know, obviously, for for hard money, uh, generally there is either no or very minimal prepayment penalties given the term, but is it a direct one for one, generally speaking, that the quote unquote shorter your term, the shorter the prepayment penalty will be? Or what is your experience? I'm just curious. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I believe on conventional financing, conventional loans for a home, I don't know if there's any prepayment penalty built in whatsoever. I've never seen a prepayment I think penalty. It's, I think lend, you, know, you might burn some goodwill with your lender, but I don't think there's any monetary well, maybe, fine But again, the lender is probably selling right. your That's loan. That's true, actually. <laughs> so they probably don't care at all. I think there is a minimum amount of time that they have to hold it. I could be wrong, but it's in like order for them to like collect short. their fees. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be 30, 60 days, yeah. something like that. But so the, the answer I would say is no. On And your question is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Um, this is, this episode had turned into the roast of Ben Shelley. That's like the uh, like you know, Willie the uh, Willie Wonka the chocolate factory. Like you get nothing. Like, <laughs> you are like, awarded no points, and yeah, may God exactly. have mercy on your exactly. Side. Um, yeah. So sometimes on on like a hard money loan, you may see that the lender wants like a guarantee of three months worth of interest payments. 
other times you might see a loan prepayment penalty of like 1% of the loan amount. So it, it varies. Loan term amortization, we talked about that. Interest only has been alluded to before. It's pretty simple. It's a loan on which there is no amortization and you're paying only interest. So it's a lot easier to calculate the the rate on that. If you have a $100,000 loan and your interest rate is 12%, that's $12,000 a year or $1,000 a month. That's your interest pay- or that's your mortgage payment. That's all you pay on a monthly basis outside of your um, holding costs. Interest only loans are only really common on investment property. I've never really seen them offered on, at least conventionally on, yeah. on owner occupied e- either, either for hard money flips or for like commercial or like you know, HELOCs or uh, HELOCs, HELOCs, may, HELOCs are often mm-hmm. um, interest only, but that can be advantageous because they, they obviously allow you to have a, a lower monthly payment than is, than if you are paying back can, principal as well. Shall we say juice some of your returns. If you, have a buy, returns. if you have a buy and hold property and you really want to do cash flow and you yeah. have an interest only loan. If you're yeah. and if you're working with a more sophisticated lender or a lender who is willing to get a little bit creative, oftentimes one way that you'll see these structured is that you'll have an interest only period. So you might have six months, twelve months, two years of interest only payments, and then it goes to a uh, an amortizing schedule and, now and that's, that'll now that's fun to underwrite. Yeah. That's generally done for the purposes of giving the owner time to get their operations up to par. Um, so if you have a big repositioning or if you have a development occurring, um, it's a way to say like, okay, we understand that your cash flow is going to be tight for the first six months or 12 months or two years, but we understand that there's upside in that and we'll work with you to, to create something that's going to work for you. The one last thing that we can touch on or that we should just highlight now is the DTI or debt to income. Mm. Um, that's a common metric for conventional financing because that's underwritten on an individual level versus against the property. So your debt to income is it's the ratio of your debt to income. <laughs> it's important to consider that the debt to income ratio, mm. and that's thrown around a lot, particularly in like the residential world too, could be inclusive or exclusive of the debt that you're about to assume. So oftentimes the minimums are inclusive of the debt. So if you're buying a home, your debt to income ratio has to be a certain number, including the debt you're about to assume, which is often quite substantial. So just as a very high level overview. And we should talk also about what underwriting is. I know that that might be very obvious, but we, we've just used the word underwriting many times. Underwriting is essentially like, I think you call it analyzing. Like you're just see, like running the numbers and seeing like, do the numbers make sense? So a lot of people in the finance world will say, I'm going to underwrite a deal. It sounds really fancy, but it just means that I'm going to take like three numbers together and see what they are. So my first title was underwriting analyst. And it took me a while to understand what that even, like, what, like that, what that even meant. Analyzing analyst. <laughs> well, I, I think it is redundant. I think it is fair to say that in previous episodes, we've alluded to a very basic form of underwriting, this idea of of underwriting or analyzing for the common uh, investor, uh, smaller rental properties. I was an underwriting analyst for a mortgage debt lender. You were an underwriting analyst for a mortgage debt lender. Did you ever underwrite the La Brea Tar Pits? Which is the the tartar pits? <laughs> this is so over my head at this point. I just don't even know. That's a, that's I'm involved a, in it. And it's that's over a very my common head joke. That's a very common. <laughs> I, mean, I just made a very common joke. I didn't. I mean, there's guys, like no complexity. You know, I made a unique joke. It just wasn't that funny. <laughs> I, I laughed very hard. It was you cut it out actually. But <laughs> we're moving further and further away. From Nobody the laughs harder at Ryan's joke than Ryan himself. <laughs> 
point being that if you listen to some of our previous episodes, you'll hear some of also the assumptions that we draw from our quote unquote analysis and underwriting cash on cash, IRR, et cetera. That's all part of this. And I definitely recommend listening to previous episodes to make sure you have a firm sense of the concepts. For the folks listening at home, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on the Brick by Brick, that's Brick x Brick, Facebook and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening.